Welcome back, everybody, to the Active Ingredients podcast. This is Andre from The Mental Health, and I'm here today with Dr. Jennifer Lau. She is a reader in developmental psychopathology at King's College London, where she directs the Researching Emotional Disorders and Development Lab. A very warm welcome, Jennifer, to the podcast. I wanted to start off by asking you, what made you decide to focus on your active ingredient? Tell us about it. Okay, thank you very much. Um, so let me tell you what the active ingredient is first. Um, so we were interested in um, promoting helpful cognitive patterns. So by cognitive patterns, we are thinking about the way that you attend to information um, in your environment, whether or not your attention is automatically captured by um, someone frowning at you, um, someone um, sort of sticking their tongue out at you, or if it's drawn by positive information, so someone smiling at you. So that's attention. But the second sort of cognitive pattern is interpretation. So the way that you explain ambiguous events. So for example, if your friend does not return your phone call, do you think that's because she's busy, which is a non-negative interpretation? Or do you think it must be because you've upset her? So a negative interpretation. So we were interested in thinking, in seeing whether or not if you're able to encourage young people to draw more positive or non-negative um, attention patterns or interpretations, whether or not that could reduce anxiety and depression. And the reason we were interested in those active ingredients is that young people with lived experiences do say that they contribute towards um, mood fluctuations in daily life. Um, second of all, we know that um, in the adult literature that if you try to target those in treatment, you can reduce anxiety and depression. Um, and finally, we think of these things as risk factors. So they might um, kind of uh, reflect um, inherited or other environmental risks on later anxiety and depression in young people. So the idea is that if we are able to challenge those during youth, um, which could be a period of increased plasticity or responsiveness towards interventions, um, then you might be able to avoid later negative outcomes like persistent anxiety and depression. So is there evidence already that in young people, these kinds of unhelpful ways of responding in terms of attention and interpretation patterns are linked to mental illness? Yes, there are. Um, so the earlier studies were sort of cross-sectional studies. So you look at both the measures of attention and interpretation and anxiety and depression at the same time. And there's, there's an association between those. Um, but sort of the, the more kind of recent studies, and by recent, I'm probably thinking the last decade or two decades, there've also been longitudinal studies too. So where you measure the kind of the cognitive factor first, and then you follow up the same, the same group of young people um, during adolescence or early adulthood um, and measure their symptoms and um, there is a predictive link between those um, and I there are also some studies that show that if you uh, try to manipulate or change um, those attention or interpretation patterns that you can sometimes um, reduce symptoms as well so tentatively a kind of causal link as well. <laughs> So tell us what, what you did for this active ingredients project 
and what evidence you found. Did that support your kind of initial views? In this project, we um, conducted a systematic search um, and we supplemented that by interviewing some people with lived experiences of anxiety and depression. Um, so what the review found was that there are several different methods for um, encouraging these more resilient attention and interpretation patterns. Um, so for attention, some of them were more about um, sort of training um, helpful attention patterns. So you would have to complete a computerized task where um, every time you, uh, every, where you had to respond to a probe um, and the probe would always appear behind um, a neutral face rather than an angry face. So the idea was that across um, different trials of that task, your attention would be drawn away from the negative towards the neutral or sometimes towards positive. So you would do that repeatedly. So there were these kind of training programs that try to change attention patterns. But then there were also um, other programs that were a little bit more explicit um, in trying to change attention patterns in general. Um, so um, probably a lot of people will have heard of mindfulness. So, so, so clearly there are these two different methods of changing attention. And one is kind of more implicit as a training thing. And one is much more explicit. So there's a technique that you sort of um, are encouraged to practice um, explicitly. So what we found with those studies with attention was that um, the training studies seem to suggest that you can um, you can you can learn to shift attention by doing it repeatedly but the effect on symptoms so the reduction in anxiety and depression that's less apparent whereas for the other studies so for example training your concentration training your um, ability to shift attention for those ones um, there was um, greater symptom reduction, but because a lot of those studies didn't actually measure attention before and after the intervention, it was very difficult to say that it was because of um, shifting attention. So they have different strengths and weaknesses. And then for the interpretation patterns, I think we found a sort of a kind of similar distinctions. So um, training programs, so training programs where um, you are given um, a scenario about a social situation and it's left with a missing word and by completing that missing word you are forced to take um, a non-negative or a positive interpretation of that situation so in the earlier example I gave you you would sort of end that situation by saying um, your friend is busy um, so for those ones again they seem to suggest that you can you can shift um, the way of thinking the way of interpreting but the effect on symptoms is 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 weak, um, weak to medium. The, the the effect of that, the size of that um, effect, uh, that symptom reduction effect. Um, and then there are another set of techniques that are again much more kind of explicit, where you work through um, often with a therapist, or and sometimes this can be delivered um, to you as an individual or to you as a group of people, um, whereby you generate. Um, different interpretations of the same situation, you explicitly weigh up um, the evidence for and against each of those um, explanations, and then you kind of take, um, take hopefully take the more kind of benign or non-negative explanation forward. Um, so it's a more explicit way of instructing people to, ch to change their interpretations. Um, 
And for those studies, again, symptom reduction was um, medium to large in terms of the size of the reduction in anxiety and depression. Um, but um, a lot of those studies didn't actually measure interpretation before and after. So it's was quite difficult to attribute that symptom change to the change in um, cognitive pattern. So I think there's mixed evidence that the research seems to suggest that you can shift those um, cognitive patterns to develop more resilient styles um, and uh, different methods have different advantages and disadvantages. And sometimes those will translate to a reduction in symptoms too under certain techniques. Was there anything that you found in the review that surprised you? So, so when I first approached this review, I had um, I had I had read this this other review that's in in the blog, um, and most of those studies were using the training methods. So I hadn't really imagined kind of explicit methods um, that also try to do the same thing, but a much more kind of guided um, and with a therapist. Um, so I suppose knowing that that there was more scope for challenging these unhelpful cognitive patterns um, was useful. Um, and I suppose some of the young people that we spoke to, um, some of the things that they said were were sort of were new to me. So they 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 sort of gave me new insights um, into this. And a, a lot of them seem to suggest that it would be good to have a kind of a combined toolbox. So using both interpretation and attention techniques and using both kind of training and uh, more explicit techniques um, would be helpful um, because these things are linked um, and so if you target both uh, it might be more helpful um, and also having different techniques to choose from you can kind of choose the one that best fits you. Please welcome active ingredients projects have encouraged all the researchers to to work with youth advisors how, how was that how did you find that process and um, it was really interesting I think um so they some of the things that they they confirmed so for example they said about how these sort of unhelpful thinking patterns unhelpful attention patterns played out in everyday life so I think that's useful. It's useful to kind of give a real life context to it. It kind of brings it to life a lot more rather than sort of giving people happy and unhappy faces to choose from in an experimental setting. Um, they also talked about the kind of the, the almost the pathways between having an unhelpful cognitive pattern and symptoms. So for example, they might um, link up um, interpreting their friends feedback as negative with then kind of going through a phase of being lonely and then that loneliness would then kind of precipitate risk for depression so they kind of talked about some of those intermediate steps that I think sometimes as researchers we we don't think so much about um, so I think that was really interesting um, and then the second part of the interview um, when we talked about what they thought was helpful or unhelpful um, in their kind of daily experiences. Um, this idea of um, combining um, techniques was one thing. Um, and then other people also talked about whether or not when you're trying to develop or promote more helpful ways of thinking, that you can also supplement that with targeting memories as well. So for example, bringing to mind 
positive memories of yourself um, or other situations to challenge some of the negative thoughts. So I think they kind of identified other techniques that could also be used in conjunction with the ones that we were already thinking about to kind of challenge the kind of negative mood and anxiety um, that often arises. So where does this leave us? What implications do you think this, this latest work that you've done has for mental health practice or future research? So I don't think we're yet at a stage where we can roll this out um, as the kind of answer to everything. Um, but I think certainly there is some um, potential in developing interventions that draw on the strengths of all of these different techniques. So the, the kind of training techniques, but then the also more instructed kind of protocols, um, both for interpretation, but also attention. So I think that's one thing, combining different techniques. So you're almost targeting different levels of the cognitive factor. So you're targeting the ones that you can easily bring to mind, but you're also targeting ones that kind of sometimes you're not so aware of as well. And then second of all, to combine techniques that target both attention and interpretation at the same time, given that they are kind of linked factors and can influence each other. Um, so I think, I think it would be good to kind of develop those combined interventions with young people themselves, because I think a lot of the research to date, especially with the training ones, the training studies, they use really kind of stimuli that are developed in the lab so they are literally kind of faces showing a, an artificial angry um, expression or a very kind of happy expression that you just don't see in real life so develop making those stimuli a bit more realistic and relevant to young people I think is, is, is really important and of course who know who knows better than what what's kind of age appropriate and relevant than young people themselves. So I think co-developing those interventions with young people, um, but using the kind of cognitive um, principles would be um, an important next step and to trial those and then to evaluate those. Yeah, and I can see, you know, developing new interventions for young people who are experiencing anxiety and depression is a clear, you know, next step. What about earlier intervention and preventative interventions because presumably this kind of cognitive bias these sorts of thinking patterns develop very early on yes yeah so um i guess I, I i didn't mention earlier but one of the other reasons for looking at these cognitive patterns is that we know that they kind of um they they, they kind of begin to stabilize and become become more trait-like across youth um, and increasingly linked with anxiety and depression. So it would be an ideal time um, to change these things. Um, so yes, yeah, so I think the idea would be that um, if you were able to develop an intervention that seemed to challenge those negative and unhelpful thinking styles and attention patterns, and also were able to demonstrate that they reduced anxiety and depression, consistently across studies, then maybe the next stage would be to think about how you could deliver, deliver this in a more accessible form. Um, so for example, through schools, um, even with some components being online um, and delivered through mobile apps, um, I think that would be that would be a kind of very that that would be the kind of um, future sort of um, 
projection. Mm -hmm.